it was truly an addiction. I was not eating as eating. I was eating as using. And I got really clear about that. I didn't know what to do about it though. And I did ultimately lose my weight 18 years ago in a 12-step food recovery program. But what I got really curious about was the brain sort of behind all this. Like, why was my brain going so far off the rails? Welcome to the Wellness Witch Podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, and I'm excited to take you on a journey to reclaiming and reconnecting to your magic, the magic of your health, your wealth, and your soul's purpose. As a woman's wellness coach and business mentor, I've been coaching women for over 15 years, helping them rediscover their innate abilities to heal, to transform, and to manifest their deepest desires. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of inspiration and information, diving into the multifaceted approach of what it means to live to our fullest potential. Let's do this. This is a Soulfire production. Welcome back, everybody. As you may know, I'm taking a bit of a summer podcast hiatus, and I'm bringing back some replays, some of our most popular and most downloaded episodes. Last week was all about Gut Health 101. This week, I'm bringing back my interview with Susan Pierce Thompson. We're talking about overcoming food addiction to flour and sugar and how it interacts with your brain. And it is a really fascinating and juicy episode. I hope you enjoy it. And before we officially dive in, I just want to remind you that you can come join us inside our Naturally Nourished 8-Week Reset. We're kicking this off on September 12th and you can save $100 off the program. So not only do you get lifetime access to Naturally Nourished, which is a step-by-step program that helps you heal your thyroid, your metabolism, and really balance your hormones, we're using the power of minerals and a food-first approach. You will get lifetime access to that program, all the trainings, the modules, the delicious recipes, the temperature charts, and learning how to actually track your temperature so you can gauge what's going on with your adrenals and your blood sugar and your thyroid. We're covering it all in a way that you probably haven't learned about before. Our reset is kicking off on September 12th. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash naturally nourished. Use the coupon code podcast at checkout. You'll save $100. You'll get immediate access into our reset when we kick that off. Live coaching support from me as well as Coach Carly, who's on our team. We're going to dive into hair mineral analysis testing. We're going to talk about minerals overall. We're going to talk about adrenal and thyroid health, balancing blood sugar, and all of the things that help you thrive. So excited to kick this off, and I hope you'll come join us for September. Now, without further ado, let's dive in to Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson and overcoming food addiction. Enjoy this replay. Hello, Susan, and welcome to the Wellness Witch Podcast. I'm excited to have you here with me. Thanks, Samantha. It's great to be here. So before we dive in, can you share with our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do? I'm Professor Susan Pierce Thompson. Uh, My PhD is in brain and cognitive sciences, and I teach people how their brain blocks them from losing weight, essentially. And um, I came to it a very circuitous route, had a a crazy childhood, adolescence, uh, coming of age, which sort of very much informed how I got into what I do, but I don't know how far back you want me to go, but yeah, that's essentially what I do. I teach people, um, about weight loss from a brain science perspective. That's amazing. Well, I'd love it if you can take us a little bit into your story. I think the storytelling is always just so powerful. 
So if you're open to sharing a little bit about that, let's start there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I struggled with my weight. I mean, that's how I got into this field is um, my food and my weight really have defined a lot of my life. And um, just because I could never sort of keep it uh, in check. And by the time I was 11, I weighed more than I weigh now. And when I got into high school, I was really concerned about my weight. And I didn't really start off with regular diets. I started off by doing drugs. And, you know, I laugh, but it got very not funny very fast. Um, I was a party girl that that turned into a full-blown addict. And I'm talking about um, mainly drugs that would help me control my weight, although that wasn't um, the sole or even probably at the time, the primary motivation. I was definitely exploring the world and pushing the edge and all that. But um, crystal meth, cocaine, crack cocaine, dropped out of high school, became a prostitute. Um, so by the age of 19, that was my resume basically. And, um, when I was 20, just after my 20th birthday, I got struck clean and sober and I haven't had a drink or a drug in 27 years. Oh my God. Um, That's which is, um, just the biggest miracle of my life. And I knew I would pack on a ton of weight when I got off that crack pipe and I did and fresh out of the horrors of addiction to drugs, I really got a sharp view into how my eating was an addiction. It was truly an addiction. I was not eating as eating. I was eating as using. I was using. And I got really clear about that. I didn't know what to do about it though. Um, I tried 12-step food programs, um, many of them in different cities uh, for 20 years, in and out and on and off and so forth. Um, and I did ultimately lose my weight 18 years ago in a 12-step food recovery program. But what I got really curious about was the brain sort of behind all this. Like, why was my brain going so far off the rails? Luckily, even though I was still using food addictively through a lot of my academic years, um, I was able to do really well in school, even while using food addictively. So I went to UC Berkeley and graduated top of my class and spoke at the graduation and majored in cognitive science, studying the brain and the mind, went to the University of Rochester and got my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, went to the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and did a two-year postdoc in psychology and then taught psychology and brain science at colleges and universities, uh, neuroscience, but mostly brain and cognitive sciences. Um, they're a little different anyway, for, uh, I guess 16 or 18 years, depending on how you count, but, and then ultimately ended up teaching a college course on the psychology of eating and the neuroscience of food addiction. Right. And that led me to write my first book, Brightline Eating. And that took me to what I do today, which is Brightline Eating. That's amazing. What a really powerful story. And so do you find that food addiction is just as powerful as an addiction to drugs or alcohol? You know what, Samantha, for me, it was just as powerful, but harder to kick by a lot. Food is the hardest. Food is the hardest. And that's actually a whole chapter in my my latest book, Resume. Food is the hardest. And there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. A lot of them have to do with the environment that we live in that pushes food on us so heavily. You know, when when I got off a crack, I had the blessing of having a whole world to a whole clean and sober world to step into where nobody was um, pushing a crack pipe in my mouth. Right. Right. Um, But in our society, food is pushed really hard. 
And your whole day is a conditioned reinforcer with, you know, cues flying in your face to, um, you know, eat stuff that's going to send you back down that rabbit hole. And all the other substances, all of them have nothing to do with survival. And we weren't wired to um, obsess about their procurement and consumption every day in order to stay alive. But the circuits that are hijacked in food addiction are as primitive and basic as they get, right? So you take those circuits and you jack them up with drugs, essentially. I talk about sugar and flour as drugs because, mm-hmm. you know, um, we could go into exactly why, but for sure. Um, but yeah, uh, it's primitive circuitry. And when it gets hijacked, it's, it's kind of game over. So um, in terms of the actual cravings and the actual sort of need to keep using, I find it equally strong in terms of trying to quit. I find it actually way, way harder. It makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, environment plays a huge role, right? Uh, Your environment at home, your environment in the workplace, like it's everywhere. The advertising commercials, like it's so in your face, like you said. So I can understand why, why it would be so much harder. So can you take us a little bit behind I don't know, behind the scenes perhaps of the brain and the brain science of why kicking the food addiction is such a challenge. Yeah, sure. Well, the brain blocks weight loss in essentially three ways. The first way everyone is susceptible to, and it's really got nothing to do with addiction. It just has to ha- has to do with how willpower is wired in the brain. And this sort of helps explain why people have such a hard time not knowing what to eat and what not to eat. I find people are actually really good at that, right? It's like blueberries, yes. Pizza, no. You know, like we all know what we're supposed to be eating. Donuts, no. drive through, no. Right, we know that. Um, But the issue is we can't execute faithfully over the long term, right? That's the issue. And it's a willpower issue. And willpower, I call it the willpower gap, right? We just fall into this big willpower gap, especially Friday nights after a long work week and the kids are tugging, tugging at our ankles and it's just, there's been a lot of traffic and, you know, uh, suddenly it's it's absolutely time to order and take out, right? And you're not about to like start assembling ingredients for a big salad, right? So the way the willpower gap works is that there's this tiny part of the brain about two inches behind here called the anterior cingulate cortex. And it sits right behind the prefrontal cortex. And it's this nexus that governs all of these different things, making decisions, resisting temptations, which is what makes it the seat of willpower, um, regulating emotional responses, like reining in, sort of snapping at our partner or the kids or whatever, regulating task performance, like imagine sort of you know, handling a, an attendance checklist on an Excel spreadsheet or something. And this part of the brain shows markedly dogged and slow activation after just 15 minutes of intensive use. Basically, we blow out this part of the brain by using it heavily. And so I teach people to think of willpower as like a 15 minute battery, you know, like it just it just loses its charge, essentially. And so what that means is in clutch situations, like toward the end of the day, people have a way harder time following, uh, you know, their preferred dietary, you know, approach, whatever, at the end of the day than at the beginning of the day. And that's because our willpower craps out on us. The way to bridge the willpower gap is to wire in your eating using a whole different part of the brain, essentially to never rely on choices because you're going to make the wrong choices often enough that it's going to completely blow your weight loss attempt, right? 
So if you start to use the basal ganglia, the part of the brain that governs your automatic responses um, at critical times of the day where you kind of do the same thing in the same way. So think brushing your teeth, right? Um, Not everyone, just 95% of people, but 95% of people really do brush their teeth morning and night with um, no thought, no, you don't have to be in the right mood for it. It doesn't matter if you're traveling. It doesn't matter if you've been to a New Year's Eve party. It doesn't matter if you're sick. Like you just brush your teeth, right? You don't, you don't, you don't need a sticky note on your mirror to remind you. That's the part of the brain that you want to govern your eating. And when you put automaticity at the center of your weight loss attempt, what what happens then is a lot of other things become obvious. One is you don't want to be eating six times a day, the whole meals and snacks and small meals all through the Mm -hmm. day thing. Imagine what would happen if you went to your dentist and he said, you've been doing so well, Samantha, with this twice a day thing. I now need you to brush and floss six times a day. Would you please like, (laughs) what are the odds that that's going to go well? Right? Like it's not no way. Right. So I recommend that people eat three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You can totally wire breakfast and dinner into, you know, a morning routine and an evening routine. And then thank goodness there's still a pause midday, you know, for people to, to eat their lunch. And if you've built a habit of packing your lunch, then that tends to work really well. So automaticity is the key to bridging the willpower gap. And, and that's why I recommend three meals a day. That's why I recommend people do not start an exercise program while they're starting to learn bright line eating or whatever approach to weight loss they're going to try because it will burn out your willpower and you won't have enough left to get the to get the automaticity right right if you if you yeah. build in a lot of exceptions which people are famous for making after they've worked out really hard the brain absolutely dem- demands a compensation effect then right you find yourself you know pulling into Starbucks and well, whatever you just consumed there, I promise you completely blew out what you just did at the gym um, from a weight loss perspective, not from a health perspective and, a, you know, all that, but from a calorie perspective, it absolutely did. And the real problem is that it's messing with your automaticity. So um, you need to wire in a sort of routine that's clean and clear, no exceptions for quite a while and working out, especially with a new routine will absolutely derail that. And this is why right there already, can we just pause for a second and notice, Samantha, that I've just said a few things that fly in the face of what everyone's trying with dieting yeah. um, or weight loss, right? Or getting, changing their ha- their eating habits, however you want to frame it. I know diets are out and you know healthy lifestyle changes are in, but whatever you want to call it, a lot of people have some weight to lose and they know it and it's a health issue. You know, right there, people are trying they're resuming their healthy approach by layering in the new dietary changes and the exercise at the same time. They're eating multiple times a day and guaranteed within a month or two or three or four, they're off that plan. It's not, it doesn't work that way. So you got to understand how your brain works or you'll never try something that has a prayer of being sustainable. Yes. I love that. We definitely share the same um, belief in regards to that with all of my clients. I'm like, no, no snacking. And it's just crazy how many people come from that mentality of you have to eat every two to three hours and all these small meals and they're packing all these meals to go to work. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Yeah. And especially adding on the weight, um, the working out and the exercise piece, you know, a weekend, you're just like, I can't do all of this. Right. And, and you just easily give up for sure. So I, I totally see that with a lot of our clients. 
So you mentioned that there were a few ways that the brain blocks. Yeah, that yes. was the first one. Yeah, that was the first one. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm just such a talker that I have to pause so that, you know. I love can... it. So that's the first one is the willpower gap and the solution is automaticity. So the second one is this thing called insatiable hunger. It's a new kind of hunger, Samantha. We didn't used to have it. Hunger used to be, I haven't eaten in, a, in quite a while. My tummy is rumbling and like, I need some fuel to sustain my life. Now people are eating and I, I just myself in this, like I used to eat a whole big dinner and then settle in for evening activities, usually either reading or watching TV and need more food. And I just eaten a massive dinner and I, then I needed some chips or some ice cream to sit in front of the TV. And when that snack was gone, I needed more food. It, it was a form of hunger that wasn't satisfied by eating. And that's why I call it insatiable hunger. And insatiable hunger is caused by a brain malfunction called leptin resistance. So the way leptin resistance works is leptin is the hormone that tells your brain you're done eating, you're full, you've had enough. Not only that, but you feel like getting active now. You want to go burn off this fuel you just ingested by doing some sort of you know, survival related activities. I don't know, go have sex, go build a hut. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but if, if your brain can't see your leptin, it's really bad news. That's what creates this. Uh, I've just got to keep eating. The elbow still needs to bend. The mouth still needs to chew. The stomach is saying I'm pretty full over here, but right. nobody cares. The mouth and the, and the elbow, they're still going right. And the stomach gets overruled and you just keep eating. So that's insatiable hunger. And the solution to leptin resistance, um, maybe I'll hold on to that because it's the same solution as uh, to the next problem. Okay. Uh, the third way that the brain blocks weight loss is um, with overpowering cravings. And these are these are drug cravings. This is this is absolute. I need a hit. Um, and it's the right. it's the wandering up and down the supermarket aisles looking for the thing that will do the trick. It's the like looking over the menu, thinking what's going to really do it tonight. It's the, you know, thinking, should we order up for this or that, this or that, which one, you know, um, or it's the like driving across town to get the special thing at the special place because they make it best. And you're just like, yeah. your system is like, it knows that that's what's going to poof. It's going to, it's going to light that brain up. Um, so those are overpowering cravings and they're caused by dopamine downregulation, which is the same thing that causes heroin addiction, cocaine addiction, alcohol addiction. So basically any of these substances, um, drugs, um, parking lot, we have to talk about what makes sugar and flour drugs. They, they hit the brain in particular, the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, this like little circuit of reward addiction pathway that's deep. It's like kind of right in the middle of the brain. It's as deep down in there as you get right above the brain stem, kind of right in the middle of the cue ball there. You've got this addiction reward pathway. Those dopamine receptors, they blow out. They become, those, those drugs cause a massive dopamine response, bigger than you could get by anything in nature. Right. And then um, over time, the brain goes, okay, that's excessive. And the brain start, those receptors start to downregulate, meaning they become less numerous, less responsive, and which is fine as long as you're going to keep going through that drive-through regu at regular intervals, as long as you're going to keep hitting that convenience store, because you've right. now rewired your brain to not have enough dopamine on board for you to feel okay at baseline. So now the issue is, 
it's not even that you need the hit. It's that you don't feel good if you don't swing through and get, you know, a muffin and a latte, if you don't swing through and get something, you know, you're, you need to top up every little bit or, or you don't feel that well. You could tell our whole society is built on this now, right? Like 40 years ago, there didn't used to be bagels and Danish passed at a 10 AM work meeting, but now people can't even go two hours without, without eating something. So the solution to both the overpowering cravings, which is the dopamine downregulation and the insatiable hunger, which is the leptin resistance is to eliminate sugar and flour from your diet. And when you do that, you stop hitting the dopamine receptors. They replenish, they heal. They really do. I have research showing that uh, from a clinical perspective, most of the healing happens in most people in eight weeks. And leptin resistance is caused by inflammation, high triglycerides, and high baseline insulin levels, all of which come down really quickly when you get that sugar and flour out of your system. So um, it's the drugs in our food supply. Yeah. So can you clarify when you say sugar and flour, are we talking all sugars, all flours? What does that look like? Yeah, totally. And that's a great sort of segue into sort of describing what I'm talking about. So sugar and flour are drugs, meaning, and once I've explained this, it it will help explain, you know, what counts, right? So if you think about what makes cocaine a drug an undisputed drug everyone agrees cocaine is a drug right right what is it 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 comes from do you know samantha where does cocaine come from popcorn plant yeah right which plant you know no i don't wait the co the yeah i'm sure i know this the cocoa plant right cocoa yeah cocoa plant right yeah Yeah. in the andes mounds they're bushes And there are these leaves and hikers in the Andes mountains will pluck a leaf off and put them in their cheek and chew them as they hike. Right. Um, And there's a published scientific paper proving that this is not addictive. It does make the cheek a little numb, a little bit. Um, It does provide a little bit of a lift, maybe the equivalent to drinking half a cup of caffeinated tea or something. Because it's in its natural form. In its natural form, it's not addictive. But when you take the inner essence of that coca leaf, and then you refine and purify it down into a fine white powder. You've now turned that natural, harmless, innocuous plant into a drug. Right. And same with heroin. Heroin comes from poppies, and you yep. can extr- you can you can eat poppies. You can eat, I mean, poppy seeds are on bagels, right? And yep. and it's got the active ingredient in there. If you eat a poppy seed bagel every morning, you will fail a drug test. <laughs> you will fail a drug oh test. Oh my god, I did not know that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's Um, wild. Without ever getting addicted to anything because the poppy seeds on bagels are not addictive, um, even though they have, they have the thing in there. Right. But if you take the inner essence of that poppy plant, you extract it and you refine and purify it into that fine brown powder or a sludgy liquid, which is heroin, right? You've now turned it into a drug. So sugar and flour are made the same way, right? I eat beets, I eat corn, I eat apples, I eat I eat all whole real foods, but I right. don't eat sugar and flour. So when we've taken the inner essence of that plant and we've refined and purified it down into a fine powder, we've turned it into a drug. So from a flour perspective, it's all flour. It's coconut flour, it's almond flour, because it's not... It doesn't matter what plant it comes from. It's the refining and purifying process that's the problem. Yeah. Now on the sugar side, sugar is such a potent drug that we have to be more careful. Unfortunately, 
once the addiction to sugar has taken hold, we've got to be far more careful. Honey is out, agave is out, stevia is out. And the reason these things are out is because the sweet taste buds on the tongue actually have direct connections to the addiction centers in the brain. The one thing that is fine, actually, um, which seems to be a contradiction, but whole real fruit is fine. And there's enough fiber in both soluble and insoluble fiber in that whole real fruit to blunt the impact on the brain. But uh, no fruit juice, no dried fruit, basically. Thanks for breaking that down. Yeah, that's really powerful. And that whole poppy thing, that was, that's just crazy to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure because it, you know, it gets me thinking about like, athletes and how many drug tests. I mean, this is a whole other conversation we can get into, but like things that perhaps like they're really following this clean protocol, but there could be these underlying things that maybe you would just never know about. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. That's so wild. So, okay. When it comes to longevity, where, you know, how does excess weight, carrying excess weight really impact our longevity? Oh my gosh. Well, with COVID now, increased odds of dying right away for starters. Um, I mean, this was one of the, this COVID pandemic was one of the biggest eye-openers in terms of, you know, can we just put to bed the idea that um, carrying excess weight isn't unhealthy? Um, it, It is, right? It is. And also biomechanically, it's unhealthy, right? So for for the knees, um, for the joints, right? Right. right. Um, And, you know, a study just came out showing that um, people with obesity who exercise vigorously and and regularly uh, still have poorer cardiovascular health than people at a normal BMI who are completely sedentary. Um, sort of putting to bed the whole, you know, oh, but if you exercise, it kind of offsets. It's certainly better to exercise than not. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't offset the cost of obesity. There are certain genes that create certain proteins that can create have some mitigating effects on the damage that obesity is causing on the body. And there are so there are people with obesity who And so let me just say, first of all, I was obese by the age of 26. So I'm not saying any of this as a like. Um, you've got to lose weight. Like I, I have spent more time, you know, fishing my binge food out of the garbage can and needing to eat it or, you know, obsessed with food in every which way my weight was the scourge of my life. Like I told, like if excess weight is a challenge, I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm not preaching from any mountaintop. Like I so get what the struggle is. Right. Um, but the reality is that it does, it does uh, put a hit on our lives and on our quality of life. And so the point that I was making was that while there are genes that create proteins that mitigate, uh, um, some of the damage that obesity can be doing to the body, research shows that it's temporary, meaning that someone who has obesity today and has no high blood pressure, no high cholesterol on and on and on odds are within five or 10 years will have uh, one or more of those markers. So it's a temporary stay. It's not a permanent reprieve. Personally, I have no judgment around the will or lack of will to do something about this. Food is the hardest. Make no mistake about it. Food is the hardest. Yep. And I have no issue with people who are like, I don't want to do what you're talking about, Susan. That sounds like I would really rather sit on the couch and, and eat the foods that I enjoy eating for a shorter duration of time with less mobility and 
that's a trade-off I'm willing to make. I say cool in the gang. Like I understand that. You know what totally. I mean? There's this great quote that says, um, it's an, it's an old Spanish proverb and it says, God says, take what you want and pay for it. Mm, that's a good one. And I just feel like, you know, you've got to pay either way, right? right. Pick your heart, yep, <laughs> you know, yep. pick your heart. But for me, I know that I needed that weight off it. it every time I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to work on my life. Like lose weight was at the top of the list. I knew that that weight wasn't for me. It just wasn't. And I was going to keep going until I found a way to get it off. And I'm just grateful that, you know, grateful that I found something that's lasting, that's peaceful, that I can live with, that um, really has made my life better in every way. Um, I'm a better person for the disciplines that I follow. For sure. For sure. And then that trickles into all the other areas of your life too, right? I've seen it over and over again. Somebody transform their health and their their body, like how they show up in their work and in their business and all those things that you could really see that. It just really yeah. starts to shine in all those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And in their relationships. Big Absolutely. Time, right? All of that, like breathing and going, okay, I used to eat over this. <laughs> I'm not going to eat over this now. Totally. Eat over this, but now I need to, yeah, breathe and learn other tools. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so how did you really find this sort of formula for bright line eating? Like where did that really start and figuring out quantities and what this was going to look like? Yeah, totally. It really came from a marriage, a marriage of two things. One was the 12 step world that I'd been in forever. For sure. Um, And, you know, I got clean and sober in 12 step programs, mad respect to 12 step programs. I am a 12-step follower forever. And the 12-step food landscape is quite complicated. It's hit or miss. And yeah, I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't want to go into that territory too far, but um, I spent a lot of time watching people and myself succeed or not succeed to various degrees on various food plans. Right. I bet. So that amounted to a lot of research. (laughs) shall we call it? Yeah. And then, so there was that, and there's a, you know, anyone who's been in a 12 step food program or still is, you know, when they encounter bright line eating, we'll see a lot of familiar stuff, right? A lot of familiar stuff. And it's very clear. Like, I mean, I was in meetings for years watching people, including myself, not be successful staying with the artificial sweeteners, right? Not be successful thinking that they just had to get rid of white flour, but not whole wheat flour, like on and on the experiments go. Right. And, um, and the reality is that for most people who have a highly addictive relationship with food, which is about 20% of the population, and that's highly addictive. uh, A third of the population is what I would call high on what's the susceptibility scale, which is my quiz. It's a short quiz for where your brain falls out in terms of low, low food addiction, susceptibility, moderate food addiction, susceptibility, high food addiction, susceptibility. So all these people on, on the high side of the scale, you know, um, those experiments, uh, they have clear winners, (laughs) winners and losers. And, um, you know, the brown flour experiment doesn't work and the artificial sweetener experiment doesn't work. So there's all of that, which is, you know, 20 years in like a meeting a day, just really dedicated to trying to find a solution there married with the, um, the academic in me, you know, the PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, all the years teaching my college course on the psychology of eating and the neuroscience of food addiction. Um, and really piecing together 
what is going on with our brains and why can't we stop? I mean, just saying, why can't Oprah lose all her weight? No one can look at that woman and say, well, she's not motivated enough, right? right? She's, she's afraid of success. Like, I don't think so. Right. Right. No, not really. Right. So what is going on with our brains? Um, And so my passion for that side of the equation, sort of married with the practicality, gave birth to Brightline Eating. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's so needed. You know, that's the brain piece and especially that emotional piece is often so missed. So I think it's really valuable to have the both of them together for sure. So I'm curious in your research, what the science is behind food addiction in children. Well, they're getting addicted really young. I mean, the latest data show that two thirds of the calories that children and adolescents are eating right now today would be classified, are classified as ultra processed foods, meaning they were born in a factory. There's never a food associated with it. It was, it was, you know, an industrial product from beginning to end and two thirds of their food these days. And, um, the child, I've, I, you know, Samantha, this is a lot of this is uncharted territory for me because I have not as of yet put in a big effort to like, you know, create bright line eating for kids or whatever. Part of it is that, um, I really think it's, it's an approach for people who want it, not people who need it. Right. I sort of feel like let them grow up and make their choice themselves. I don't, I'm not in the convincing business. My, my job is to provide a, a really effective roadmap and just a fabulously uh, welcoming, compassionate, loving, non-judgmental community for when people decide that it's what they want, you know, when they're ready. And as a mom of three daughters, I just got to say feeding kids in this current food environment, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my whole life. It's so even knowing everything about it, it's, (laughs) it's stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. For sure. Yeah, I bet. So I'm really curious when it comes to sugar and flour, do you recommend just cold turkey cutting it out 100%? You know, people are different about that, Samantha. I think, you know, you've got Gretchen Rubin talks about abstainers and moderators, right? Yep. And we have both in Brightline Eating. I mean, it's definitely a program for the abstainer for sure, but uh, you can also tippy-toe your way in from the shallow end of the pool if you want to, right? Mm I'm an abstainer by nature. So I just rip that bandaid off. You know, I go cold Turkey, but, um, there are withdrawal symptoms. Food addiction is very real and there, uh, will be withdrawal symptoms. Odds are For sure. um, depending on, you know, all drugs are dose dependent, depending on how much you've been using. And so I, you know, that's up to the individual. So for somebody that's listening today and has been through this journey of yo-yo dieting and starting and stopping and starting and stopping, where do you suggest they start? What are those first baby steps that somebody can implement? You know, I think find out what kind of brain you have, because it all starts there. You know, like the susceptibility scale goes from one to 10. 10 is high, right? And th- so that's the food addiction susceptibility scale. Find out how vulnerable your brain is to the pull of those addictive foods. Because, you know, if you're an eight or a nine or a 10, then what that information does for you is it empowers you to, if you choose, if you choose shortcut potentially years of future failed research attempts and just say, look, I've got to try a tried and true system. You know, I got to try something that's potent enough for the kind of brain that I have. 
And then you'll know that giving something like Brightline Eating a try is a really high value approach for you, right? You know, if you're a four on the scale, well, then that's really helpful information too, because there are people who have class three obesity and are a four on the scale. It happens. Um, Weight and food addiction susceptibility are not as tightly correlated as you might think. They're correlated, but not as tightly as you might think. And so, you know, if what you've got is a weight problem and not a food addiction problem, well, then what I've been saying about like no stevia and stuff like that doesn't necessarily apply to you. So that's where I would start. People can take that quiz by going to brightlineeating.com. And that's B-R-I-G-H-T-L-I-N-E, brightlineeating.com. So that's where I would start. It's it's empowering to have the information, right? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Awesome. So where can our audience connect with you and find you? And I know you have a new book out as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, people can find me at brightlineeating.com. And, you know, it only costs 20 bucks a month to do Brightline Eating. It's mm-hmm. just, and, you know, it used to be $1,000 for the first year to do Brightline Eating. But after we got a certain momentum going, with our staff of 33, you know, we've been able to really bring down our prices and make it really affordable and within reach for everyone. So, oh my gosh, you save more than that just by starting the program, just for all that extra, you know, those extras. <laughs> yeah, <talking>. totally. <laughs> yeah. My new book, Resume, um, the powerful reframe to end the crash and burn cycle of food addiction. It's about the issue of long-term recovery when there's an issue in play with the perfectionism that an approach like Brightline Eating can engender, right? And there's a way to do it without being a rigid perfectionist. And it has to do with conceiving of your journey as one that's going to have ups and downs, ebbs and flows, Mm -hmm. but also recognizing that if you've got a certain kind of brain, it's important that on the, on the lapse phase, right? The downswing, you don't tumble into the danger and destruction zone, right? You're not back to the races with the food again in the way that it used to be, but understanding that there's going to be ebbs and flows is really important. So there's ways to put safeguards in place so that as life is getting harder and your habits are getting wonkier, Right. Um, you're sort of scanning the instrument panel and noticing that you're sliding down and you're able to pull up before you, you, you know, it all goes to hell. And then you're, you know, you're a hundred pounds up and you're waiting another year or two before you start again. Right. For sure. Um, so that's kind of what the book is about. It's a, it's a book for people for, I would say veteran veteran war weary yo-yo dieters. It's a, it's a powerful reframe and it's subtle and it, and it puts a lot of um, agency and a lot of hope sort of back in your control. And I talk a lot about the inner journey, right? The reasons we sabotage ourselves, the inner forces that are at work in a long-term food journey. Awesome. Well, I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much for sharing that today and sharing all your awesome knowledge with us. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for being with me today. If there's anybody that you know that can benefit from today's episode, please share it with them. And if you haven't yet left us a rating and a review, we would so appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. I'll connect with you next week.